Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. Have your Bibles. Turn to the Revelation. The Revelation, chapter 1, verse 20, and then we'll be looking at the first part of chapter 2. Last week, we talked about part of the mystery that he said. There was the mystery of the seven stars of the angels to the churches. And then he says, there's also a mystery about the seven lampstands. And those seven lampstands represent the church, our churches. So I want to read that verse where it talks about that mystery. And then the first part of chapter 2. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, remember that that word mystery or that idea of mystery is something that had not been known up to that time, but now is being revealed. In other words, this is something that God knew within his heart, within his mind, but now he wants to reveal what are the seven stars we talked about last week and, and what are the seven lampstands are the churches and what does it mean by those seven? What is the mystery of that? What is it he wants us to know? Then he begins in chapter two and chapter three to write a letter. Jesus writes a letter to each of the seven churches of the revelation are the seven churches of Asia Minor. Three, four of those churches in chapter 2, and three of those churches in chapter 3. So I want to read just today the one to the church at Ephesus, the first church there in the beginning of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolodians, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Jesus says to John as he's writing, I want to reveal to you the mystery of the churches. I want you to see what is happening within church and within the church age. Remember that the church age has its beginning. The church was started by who? Excuse me? The church was started by who? 
Jesus. Jesus started the church. I build my church upon this rock. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He is the one who started the church. The church didn't exist in the Old Testament. The church existed when Jesus Christ came into this world. He redeemed mankind. And it really got its birthing place at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon them and thousands of people got saved and the church began to grow. That's the beginning of the church. And there is an end point for the church. You know when the end point is? Is when the rapture happens. When the rapture takes place, Jesus is coming and he's taking his bride away. He is taking the church away and the church will not be here. During those years, seven years of the great tribulation, the church will not be here. So there is a beginning point and there's an ending point of the church, of the church. But In that church and in that time from the inception to whenever the rapture rapture happens, there's different ages of the church. There are different stages that the church will go through historically, as well as the fact that it'll apply to each individual church as it applies also to each individual believer. Let me explain that to you. Have you ever wondered why in God's word, in this revelation, Why were these seven churches chosen by Jesus to write a letter to them? Have you ever thought about that? Why were these churches chosen? There has to be a divine purpose. There is a divine purpose that these are chosen. There there are better known churches that you find in, in Scripture. For instance, the church in Colossae. All right, they had a letter written by Paul. What about the church at Philippi? What about the church at Thessalonica? What about the Roman church? What about the Jerusalem church? What about the Antioch church that sent out the missionaries? There were churches that were far better known than these seven churches. So what is the divine purpose? Why did God choose and Jesus choose to write letters to these seven churches that are located in close proximity there in Asia Minor? It's because these churches and in their characteristics will describe each and every one of the ages that the church will go through from its inception to the rapture. You got it? It's going to describe, each one of them is going to have a characteristic or characteristics about that particular church that will be identifying an age within this history of the church. Now, what's exciting about that, it lets us know this, that from the very beginning of the church, Jesus knew what was going to happen in the church. He knew what was going to take place. He knew the different places that were going to be and the different things are going to happen. Because why? He is an all-knowing God. He's an all-knowing God. Now, remember also, and I share with you that the number seven represents what? It represents all. It's completeness. So, these letters written to these churches are not for that individual church alone, but for all churches, all the churches of all ages of all time. And these seven churches represent the seven ages or stages in the church. And, and there's one other thing to note about that. Notice whenever he writes to each one of these churches, he always ends out by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church, singular or church is, to the church is. In other words, the letter that is being written is not just for that particular church. It is for that church, but it's for all churches. Any churches that fits into that category, any church that face that particular thing. 
It's for churches beyond just those seven. So get in your mind. There's a divine purpose behind what God's doing when he's writing to these seven churches. If you have your Bible, if you have uh, maps in the back of your Bible, you probably have a map in there of the seven churches of the Revelation or Asia Minor. All of them are located very close together. But it's like it is a circuit rider. He begins with Ephesus. When he goes to Ephesus, he goes a little north there. He goes to Smyrna. When he, gets, when he gets up there to Smyrna, he takes a trick around to, around to Thyatira, and then he comes back down to Sardis, and he comes back all the way down to Laodicea. You find all those seven churches that are in this trek that he's following, and therefore these, this letter or this message is going to be delivered to all of them. Well, when I'm talking about the seven ages of the church, the seven church, ages of the church is a foreshadowing of different ages the church will progress through. I left a chart out here. Did y'all pick up that chart? Any of you pick up a chart? I, I gave you a chart out here for you to pick up. It'll be online. You can pick them up here. But this is for, something for you to have, for you to study. It's just a chart to identify the seven stages or ages of the church. Each one of those represented. So I give you a number that's the age one through seven. I give you what the church, the letter to the church. I give you what the name of that particular age of the church is. I give you the historical events and the years that it represents. For instance, the first of those churches that we read about today is the church of Ephesus. This represents the apostolic age, the apostolic age. That's from the inception of the church to the end of the last apostle who is John when he dies. From about 33 A.D. to 100 A.D. And it tells you that this is the period of the apostles, the day of Pentecost, ending with the death of the last apostle John. But it also describes what the spiritual characteristic is that's described in the book of Revelation. The cooling off of the church's passion, which once had fire and flame of the love for Jesus. Isn't that what he just said to Ephesus? You've done a lot of good things. You're doing a lot of things. But one thing I have against you is that you have left your first love. In other words, there was this cooling off. They didn't have the same passion, same love. We'll talk about that in a minute because we're going to talk about the church of Ephesus today. Well, the second of the churches is the church at Smyrna. And Smyrna is during the era of the Caesars from about 100 to 312 A.D. And this is the time of tremendous persecution Tremendous persecution that they have to go through. And it's a time of martyrdom when terrible suffering was the hands of the Roman emperors because the Christians would not worship or bow down to Caesar. Many, many Christians died at that time. And Smyrna represents that era. Three, Pergamon, the time of Constantine. Do you remember Constantine? Constantine in Western Civ was thought by most Christians, to be, man, he's wonderful because, remember, he saw that vision and put a cross on his, on his uh, shield, and they won their battle, and therefore he became a Christian, and he made, Christianity became the national religion. Well, I'll tell you something. It is not a good thing for Christianity to ever be a national religion, all right? That's not the purpose of Christianity, and it wasn't good for them. What he did, what Constantine did, is he married the church to the nation. And when he married the church to the nation, I'm going to tell you what happens in that. More nation gets in the church than the church gets in the nation, all right? And, and it's a time whenever the church became wed to the world and it lost its influence. 
That's what it says about the church of Pergamum. The church is married to the world. Constantine performed the ceremony decimated by the doctrine of Balaam and the exaltation of clergy. We'll talk about that when we get to that, all right? Then you get to the next one, Thyatira. It's called the Dark Ages. Remember reading about the Dark Ages? The Dark Ages, when there were the Inquisitions, that was from about 590 to 1517. And you remember what happened? When Jezebel ruled the church, it says, and the church became a harlot, a scarlet woman, 50 million Christians were killed during the Dark Ages. 50 million Christians during those Dark Ages by the church. See the problem? Then you got Sardis. It's the time of the Reformation. You remember reading about the Reformation? It gives you the dates. It's the time whenever these stood up and said, we believe that Jesus is the way for salvation and that the Word of God needs to be back in the hands of the people, not the church. And it was a time of tremendous persecution, but these people paid the ultimate price to get the Word of God back in the hands of people. That's what that church represents of Sardis. Philadelphia, the missionary church, it's when missions began worldwide. Never had it happened before. It began to spread everywhere. William Carey, Luther Rice, Adoniram Judson. You heard all those names? That's during that era, the church of Philadelphia when it's missionary. And the last of those churches is called the apostate church. It's the church of Laodicea. And this timetable is about 1925 till Jesus comes. So what era are we living in? We're living in the Laodicean era. Whenever the church says, we are rich and have need of nothing. When we are poor and blind and naked and miserable and we need for Jesus to minister to us. Whenever there's this lukewarmness about things of God. That is the age of the church. Those are the church age. Pick that up and look at it. We'll be focusing on it some more because each one of those is going to apply to it. And let me tell you, it follows just every one of those churches. It follows that age just as it goes. And we are in the final age of the church, which the Laodicean age is not an exciting age to be a part of, except for the fact that the next thing that happens is what? The rapture. Amen. Bless God. If we've got to go through it to get to the rapture, well, hallelujah. The rapture could happen today. Are you ready? It can happen today. There's nothing that keeps Jesus from coming today. It can happen today. You better be ready. Well, the mystery of the seven churches, first of all, is about this church age. Pick up that chart. But the second thing is about the churches that in any and every age, there are churches that will exhibit the similar characteristics of one or more of these churches. In other words, a church is not just in particular age. There can be individual churches in any age that are give those particular qualities. Let me give you an example of that. In every age, there have been churches in every age that did a lot of good things but left its first love, like Ephesus. In every age, no matter where they were, their church did do the right thing, we're doing it, but we just don't love Jesus like we ought to. Or there's also, there have been churches that have been persecuted and experienced martyrdom in every age like Smyrna. Right today, my friend, there are Christians being persecuted. Oh, if you get to Alabama Baptist a couple weeks ago, you should have read about China and what's happening in China, a crackdown. They burned a church. They burned a church where 50,000 believers gathered to worship. They burned it to the ground. And they are changing their laws in China to persecute and to shut down Christianity more than any time. They're raising up communism and trying to shut down the church. And it's a horrible thing. 
Listen, persecution happens in every era, not just in the Smyrna age or back in the Caesar time. So this is the church age. It happens anytime, and it can happen in individual churches in whatever age. A third thing is this. There are individual members of the church, the body of Christ in every age, who may be described by the characteristics of one of the churches. In other words, it's not just the church, but it can be an individual. There may be an individual in any era, in any age, in any church who has characteristics described by these letters. For instance, there are lukewarm members in every church. In every era, there's going to be somebody who's lukewarm. All right? They're just not cold or hot. They're just lukewarm. All right? No matter what era, no matter what age, they're always lukewarm believers. They're also usually missionary-minded people in every church. Not just in the era of of the missionary age of Philadelphia, but in every era. We have people who are mission-minded, who want to be out there and sharing the gospel of Christ and going and making a difference in the world and and seeing people who don't know that that they can know. In other words, there are individuals who fit into the every church or description of church in, in every age. There are also people in every church, in every age, who have so married themselves to the world that they're of little help to the kingdom. (laughs) Whenever you get married to the world like Pergamon, and you get married to the world, and you're trying to find out whether you're going to please God or please the world, I'm here to tell you, if you've got a debate on about whether you're going to please God or please the world, you're not going to be very effective in the kingdom of God. Because what Jesus called you to do is to be separate, amen? To be separate, unique, and different. And if you're going to be trying to wed the two things together and marry the two things together and try to have one leg over here and one leg over there, you're not going to be real effective in the kingdom of God. And that's going to be in every era. There have always been those people. So when we talk about these seven churches, we're talking about the seven ages of the churches from its inception all the way to the rapture. We're talking about specific churches that can be in any age of the church because they have characteristics described by one of these seven churches. Or we can be talking about individual people, individual people who have the characteristics of those churches, even though they don't live in that era or that age. And even though the church may not be like that, they have those characteristics in their heart. So the mystery of it is that in in few verses, God can speak to the church as a whole. God can speak to the church individually, and God can speak to individual members. How in the world can one passage of Scripture do all that? Because it's the living Word of God. The living Word of God can accomplish all of those multiple purposes all in one, at one time, with a small point of verses. That's the mystery of the church. All right? Now, Next thing I want you to do is I want you to see how Jesus wrote these letters. And I want you to read those letters this week, okay? All seven of these churches are going to have a general outline of how, how it's written. Here's the first thing. Every letter is going to begin with Jesus describing himself some way. That's the way he starts, all right? Let me show you in the one we're looking at today, Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, here's the description of Jesus. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now that description goes back to chapter 1. You remember chapter 1? He gave all that description of what he saw about Jesus, that he's walking among the lampstands, he had the stars in hand. They're all going to go back to chapter 1. But that's the way Jesus describes himself. 
I'm the one who has the stars in my right hand. I'm the one who walks among the candlesticks. And usually his description is going to be pertinent to something he's going to say to that church about their life, about their needs, about what needs to be corrected. He's going to be there and he's going to describe himself some way that's going to going to minister to them or help them to know that he is able to take care of their needs. Here's the second thing. Jesus usually gives a word of commendation or encouragement. Usually gives a word of commendation. Here in Ephesus, in verse 2 and 3, he says, I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, that you cannot endure evil men, that you put to test those who call themselves apostles that are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and you've endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Every one of those are words of commendation. This is something you're doing right. This is something I'm proud of. This is something I'm excited about. I want to lift you up. He gives them a word of encouragement. Almost every church received that except the church of Laodicea. Laodicea received no word of commendation from Jesus at all. Following that word of commendation, though... Jesus follows up usually with a word of correction or displeasure for that church. Look at Ephesus again. He said all these good things that he says in verse 4, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Jesus almost usually has a word of correction except for two churches. The church at Smyrna had no word of correction or displeasure. And neither did the church at Philadelphia. Neither of those two churches received any corrective word. Now, that'll tell you something. That the church is going to be purest when it's being persecuted. Isn't that true? It's going to be purest when it is persecuted. Because, see, when persecution comes, those who are on the fringe and don't really mean it, they're not going to be there. Only those who are willing to die for their faith, only those who love Jesus with all their heart, only those who have faith to believe that he is the son of the living God, only those who look to eternity more than this world will hang on. The rest will leave. Somebody came here today and said, I'm going to kill every one of you. Stay. If you're a believer, you stay. If you're not a believer, you leave, you can live. How many of you are going to stay? Hi, I got one staying. Bless your heart. You can come stand by me. I love that. Don't we need the faith of a child? Only one raised her hand. She said she'd stay. I'm glad I'm not going to be alone. My wife said she'll stay. Thank you, dear. (laughs) The church is purest in times of persecution. And also, listen, the church is most powerful in times of reaching the world. There was not a negative word to Smyrna, the church being persecuted. There was no negative word to the church of Philadelphia because they were busy reaching the world for Christ. If you want to be an on-fire church, just go through persecution times and be on fire for telling people about Jesus, and you'll get words of commendation and not words of correction. Well, after that, Jesus always offers an invitation to repent. If necessary, Smyrna didn't have to have it. Philadelphia didn't have to have it. But all the other churches were invited. Listen what here in Ephesus says. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you 
repent. That was the invitation of Jesus. Every church that he says a word of conviction about, he offers to them an invitation to be right, to repent, to return. I'm telling you what, we got a good God. We got a merciful Savior. Because no matter what we do and where we go, where we run to, he always offers that invitation. And then the letter closes out with this. He gives a promise to those who overcome. Listen to what he says in Ephesus, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What a glorious promise. What a wonderful promise that if you will repent, if you will return, if you will come, I will let you eat of the tree of life. Where was the tree of life originally? In the Garden of Eden, that's right. But God took it out of the Garden of Eden because he didn't want man in his sin to perpetually live. In his sin. He took it out of the Garden, carried it up to paradise, and he says to those who overcome, one day you're going to have a chance to eat of the tree of life. And when you do, you're going to eat of it in paradise. It has 12 fruits. It bears every month. And the leaves are for the healing of the nations. That's a good tree. That's a good tree, and you have a chance to partake of it if you overcome. If you overcome. Every one of the letters are written in the same way. A description by Jesus, a word of commendation, if there is a word of commendation, a word of correction, an invitation to get right, a promise to the ones who overcome. And then the general sense is this is written to all of the churches. Let all the churches hear. Let all the churches heed what is being said. Well, I've already gone through Ephesus with you, but I want to go through Ephesus because of something we're doing this morning. We're observing the Lord's Supper together. The Lord spoke to my heart that we need to be observing the Lord's Supper more often than we do. We're going to do it every two months this year. We're going to do it every two months because we just need to, need to remember. It's what we need to do. But The church at Ephesus is the first church. It's the apostolic age church. It's where that first generation are the ones who walked with Jesus, saw Jesus, taught with Jesus, saw the miracles of Jesus, were touched by Jesus, saw him die on a cross, saw him resurrected. I I mean, there's no way to describe what they had the experience of. Amen? And they were on fire and above everything else. The motive of their life was they were in love with Jesus. Love is an emotional word. You realize that? Love is not a factual, just uh, mind. It is what I think. It's the rational thing I should do. It's not like Spock on Star Trek. Y'all don't even know what that means. But uh, Love is emotional. And it started out, these men loved Jesus with all of their heart, with all of their heart. But as those who had seen him and those who walked with him, they just passed away. Then the second generation of believers came. And the second generation of believers, they heard about Jesus. They heard what Jesus did. They heard what Jesus said. They they learned about Jesus. They were able to fellowship with those people who had seen it eye to eye and get a personal witness, but they hadn't experienced that same thing. And therefore, as the apostolic age went, they were still doing the right things, 
But they weren't in love with Jesus like that first generation. Now, Jesus, when he talks to them, he gives them a word of commendation. Matter of fact, he gives them seven things. Think about that. Seven things in in this word he says that you do right. Listen, here they are. Number one, I know your deeds. Second, I know your toil. Third, I know your perseverance. Four, I know that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not. And you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, and down in six. And this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nickelodeons, as I also hate. He gives a lot of good words. This is a church that's doing the right thing. I'm here to tell you on the annual report to the Southern Baptist Convention, Convention, they have leading in baptisms and leading in missions giving and, and leading in teacher training. And I'm telling you what, they're the church. Everybody, everybody wants to be a part of that church. They're doing all the right things. Just one thing. Just one thing that he says they're not doing, and that is they don't love him like they used to. They don't love him like they used to. Their, their hearts are not moved with passion. Their hearts are not stirred within them when they think about Jesus. And he says, you need to regain that. You need to have that. Isn't that true that can happen to all of us? That happens in any relationship. I mean, whenever you first fell in love with that girl that you're married to, guys... Or whenever you first fell into that guy, fell in love with that guy that you married two girls. I mean, did somebody have to tie you up, bring you down the altar? Did you go down there, man, I really don't want to do this. <laughs> I'm just having to do this. I, I feel sorry for him. I hope that's not it. <laughs> I, I, I married a lot of people. I, I haven't yet found one groom who looked at me when the bride's walking down and said, man, isn't that the ugliest woman you've ever seen in your life? But I'm going to marry her. I, I've never seen, now I've seen some pretty ugly brides, but I, I've never, but he thought she was pretty, right? And, and there's this tremendous love. No, nobody can describe the love that you have. That's why you got married. That's why you chose to be with each other. But, but let's be careful. As time goes on and life goes on, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves still doing the right thing. Take out the garbage, <laughs> cook supper, wash the car. You're doing all those right things, but the problem is you don't have the same passion. You don't have the same movement of your heart. You don't get chill bumps whenever they walk in the room. You need it. Don't lose that. That's the vitality of that relationship. That's the, that's the part that transcends. It's inexplicable. You know it's real, but it's inexplicable. That's what Jesus wants from his children. He wants that kind of love. Not just to do the right things. Not just to come to church, give your offering, serve somewhere. Not, but, but that you're moved by a love that you have for him. You don't have to do those things. You get to do those things.
Because you have a great love for him. That's what Jesus wants. So what did Jesus say? This is what he said. Look in the word. He said three things you got to do in order to return. He said, first of all, I want you to remember. I want you to remember. I'll come back to that one. Second, once you remember, I want you to repent. I, I want you to repent. And repentance means I've been doing the wrong thing or either I've been doing it for the wrong reason. Or I haven't had the love in my heart that I need. You need to repent of that. Confess that. Change your heart. Change your mind. And the third thing is return. Return. That's what he said. Remember. Repent. Return. And if you will do those things, you will overcome. And you'll have the opportunity of eat of the tree of life. One day with me in paradise. Repent, we know about. Returning, do the right things. But here's the first thing he said. You need to remember. Remember? Yeah. Do you want your, you want your heart and your passion and your love to grow? You want it to be rekindled? Here's what you do. You remember. Remember what that person meant to you. Remember what that person did for you. Remember what that person felt like. Remember what that person said. Remember, remember all those things that caused you to fall in love. And Jesus says, just do that with me. Just remember why you fell in love with me. A few of those things. He loved you when nobody else did. And nobody else could. And he revealed his love to you by hanging on a cross to take your place. Not everybody's place, your place. You deserve to die on a cross. And Jesus hung there for you. And the whole time he's hanging there is saying, this is how much I love you. This is how much I love you. And if you'll take time to remember what he's done for you, how he spoke to your heart, how he caresses you and cares for you, you cannot help but return to that first love. And that's what Jesus wants. Well, the Lord's Supper is all about remembering, isn't it? That's what it says. Do this in remembrance of me. When you take of that bread, remember that's my body that hung on a cross for you. When you partake of the fruit of the cup, remember that represents my blood that every drop had to be shed for you. You remember what I have done for you. And if you'll remember, really remember, you'll fall in love with me again. And when you do, you have to look forward to the tree of life that we'll partake together in paradise. Amen. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon series. Jesus said, 
I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.